Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. everybody year three of the drunken dallas podcast unbelievable this is episode 49 and unbelievable guest this is just i'm about ready to pop i can't believe who actually agreed to be on the show and i guess if you just tie the right person up and drag him into a room and, and, and feed him cake they usually talk yeah that's you know nothing like beating people senseless to get the job done but that's not that wasn't necessary because daniele bolelli made contact with our our, our our new best friend graham hancock on the show today, and he's a little shy. Oh, yeah. Took a little prodding to get him to start talking. Yeah, Graham is not a talkative type. But uh, he, he gets into it after a little while. You'll hear that, you know, he was okay to, to converse after a bit. No, it was amazing. Great and, conversation. Graham is an amazing guy, good writer. Please support his work. Uh, we're going to put notes uh, in the episodes, uh, in the episode notes. There are going to be all the links you need to find out all this stuff. He does a great offer. If you do get his new book, he will uh, send you a book plate with a signature so you can drop yeah, it in the front. And you just email him, ask for it, send your address. And I know because he sent me two for two of my old books. Really nice guy. I mean, who does that? Of big, Among big authors, it's not exactly a common thing. And Graham is definitely, I mean, somebody was sold five million copies of one of his books. I would say he qualifies as a pretty damn big author. They should make Sue Grafton do it so she doesn't get to write any more of those terrible mystery anyway one of the miracles of uh, year three is that you guys are still listening and we love you for that and uh, our sponsors are still with us so we want to thank Datsusara that has been with us from day one we're now at beginning of year three thank so you Chris absolutely you are the man it's funny, I think we tried every shape and size of bag. I've yeah. Um, the big ones in airplanes, the backpacks are awesome. You've got the Joe Rogan fanny pack that you seem to like quite a bit. Everything. I the... think he likes to make his butt look nice. <laughs> <laughs> I like it because of illegal reasons, which I cannot mention. There we go. But, but great stuff. Micro Ninjas, what more can be said, man? Go order some stuff. It's getting close to holiday time, and Chris could certainly lose some, use some love, and it would be sure awesome if you would buy some of his awesome bags. Yeah, to give you guys an idea that we really mean it here, uh, for one month, for example, uh, we decided, screw, uh, you know, don't pay us, just give us some goods, no money whatsoever. We just love the bag so much, but we don't want to, you know, take advantage of getting too many freebies, so please just send us... Send us some of the bags. So rich family, we, you know what you can get for Christmas at this point. Absolutely. And you'll like it too, damn it. Yeah. And so for hemp gear, absolutely, that's Usara. 
onnit.com uh, there's a whole range of as they put it human optimization meaning a whole range of products ranging from supplements to special foods to workout gear kettlebells battle ropes you name it there's a whole range of different things out there that i invite you guys to check out and uh, the beauty of it is that you know with that necessarily you know what you got right it's like you get you you're looking for hemp gear mainly bags of one kind or another there are other things there are the hemp gear and everything but primarily you know what's up on it is there are so many different things that the odds are even if you don't like we are not interested in 50% of their products. They're You're going to want a, some of that sea salt. There's still a ton of good stuff out there. So yeah. check them out. And of course, absolutely, it's last in this moment, but definitely not least, sure design t-shirts. Hi, Bennett. Yeah, Bennett, you're the man. I'm sporting right now my Jerry Garcia hand with the chop middle finger because poor Jerry Garcia during a camping trip was holding... Uh, no, his brother was chopping wood and it didn't go well. So the fact that he could play such, like, such a guitar god with missing one finger. That's that, the one to go, though, man. He still bar chord quite nicely with that middle one gone. So, But yes, uh, thank you, Bennett. So as usual for all our sponsors, there are links in the episode notes to get discounts and everything else. Other thing we want to mention, Taoist Lecture Series, it's done. Dun, 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 it's dun. officially done. It's ready. So... You go on, I'll put a link in the episode notes, but if you go on daniellebolelli.com under store, you'll find the Taoist lecture series. Happy that it's done. Thank you so much, Emanuele Carnevale, who helped set it up. Um, there was a lot of frantic emails back and forth from Italy, and uh, thank you so much for putting up with me. I know I was a, a little pushy about this stuff. Isn't that amazing, though, that it can happen that way now, that around the world yeah. you can get things organized? and Absolutely. No, that was really sweet of him. So yeah, that is lecture series. We're gonna put a bonus episode at some point with one of the lectures for free out there. So you'll be able to check it out, see if you like it. If you like it, maybe you decide you wanna get the rest. You don't like it, you save yourself the money of finding out that you, after, you didn't like it after all. But since that's impossible, screw that option. Yeah, it's kinda of like, you know we got like it. On that note, let's get the ball rolling and welcome Mr. Gramenko. Okay, guys, awesome guest today, Mr. Graham Hancock. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure to be with you. And uh, just a quick intro for you guys. I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with Graham already. Um, if you listen to most of the podcasts that most of our listeners listen to to begin with, Joe Rogan, Duncan Trussell, all of that, I strongly suggest you check out some of those episodes because they're... I went maybe a couple of months ago on a Graham Hancock binge where I listened to every single podcast you put out as a guest in all right. the various places. They are brilliant. I enjoyed each one of them. So one thing that I want to do is in order to avoid uh, repeating some of the same stuff over yes. and over so that some of you guys may have already heard that you don't want to hear it for the seventh time in a row. Yeah. 
Um, we are gonna kind of maybe touch on some topics because of course they are key topics for him, but we're also gonna go in a slightly different direction. Great. So if you guys want some background on a lot of other stuff that we won't discuss today, please check uh, the multiple appearances made with Joe, with Duncan, with other people that right now I'm forgetting, but I listen to some great podcasts. So uh, let's do that. Now, having said that, let's talk books first yeah. and foremost. So you are renowned for Fingerprints of the Gods. You are renowned for several of your nonfiction work. And uh, but now mm, the last few years you made a switch to, well, it's not a switch in the sense that you have abandoned nonfiction, but you you definitely uh, started focusing more on writing fiction. I'm really interested in writing fiction and in writing Mm -hmm. novels. Um, And it came about in a rather in a rather unusual way. Um, I had I had felt for some time that I wanted to explore what narrative gifts I have in a fictional context. Mm-hmm. Some some ideas are so extraordinary that the best place for them may not be nonfiction. Right. When you when you begin to explore very difficult and extraordinary ideas in nonfiction, you have to put up this whole apparatus of footnotes and references Mm -hmm. and you have to be aware of where the critics will come from and that creates and I have long experience of this that creates a defensive style of writing yep and a defensive style of writing is two things it's actually rather boring (laughs) to write and it's actually rather boring to read yep Um, and I wanted to free myself from that and I felt that one way to do that would be to explore the extraordinary ideas I'm interested in, but to do so in a fictional context where right. it's a where it's a novel where there's no need for the academic critics to get mm-hmm. all upset and come and find what little holes in my arguments they can expose because it's you know it's just a game it's just right. it's just an it's just an adventure story. Um, now, the key thing with novels, however, is not actually the ideas you're exploring. Mm-hmm. The key thing is the characters that you put into the story. If the reader can't identify with the characters, then you're lost yeah. right at the beginning. Yeah. You might as well forget. It doesn't matter how excellent and interesting the ideas are expressed in that novel. If the characters don't grab the reader, you have failed as a novelist yeah. right at the outset. Um, and and the second the second thing is that the the readability should be there. It should be a it should be a flowing a flowing readable story with uh, with with a gripping uh, moments in it that keep you wanting to to turn the pages. Because fundamentally, we do read to be entertained. Um, let's not pretend it's any otherwise. When we're reading fiction, we're reading to be entertained. When we're yeah. reading nonfiction, we may be reading to add to our knowledge base. But the first and foremost with right. fiction is entertainment. So I ha- I, I, my question to myself was, can I do that? Mm-hmm. Can, I, can I make that shift from writing heavily referenced defensive nonfiction books to, to writing un- unreferenced, adventurous uh, stories with, with gripping characters? And I put that question... Um, in Brazil to uh, the entity that I call Mother Ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been drinking uh, ayahuasca, the Amazonian vine of souls, 
uh, for about the last uh, 12 or 13 years. You go every I, year? I do. I go, I go every year um, d- down to Brazil, and I usually have five sessions over a period of two weeks. And, and what I found is that it's a good idea uh, to have a project when mm-hmm. you go down there because this is um, it's very deep personal work. You're getting, you're getting into areas of yourself that you normally don't explore. It's not narcissistic. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's really an opportunity to consider your course in life and, and to perhaps have a, a, a new perspective on it. So on that occasion, I think it was either 2006 or 2007 when I went down to Brazil, my question for my five ayahuasca sessions was, can I write a novel and what might I what might it be about mm-hmm. actually what would this what would the, I was completely open-minded uh, to to that and strangely now uh, when we don't know what's going on with ayahuasca mm-hmm. actually uh, nobody knows the science that maybe the science can never be done to actually settle what these extraordinary experiences are uh, this sense of an encounter with powerful intelligences other than oneself mm-hmm. uh, who we don't normally meet in our alert problem-solving state of consciousness you have to be in the trance state that ayahuasca induces in order to meet them are these entities that we meet I, when I say we I can compare notes with thousands of people around the world from many different cultures who drunk ayahuasca and they're they're all meeting these telepathic intelligences in the ayahuasca state are we just creating that as figments of our own um, brain chemistry or is there some freestanding alternative reality? I, I tend to think there is a freestanding alternative reality, but I can't prove that. Of course. At any rate, it's a powerful experience. Mm-hmm. And the powerful experience for me on those five sessions in Brazil that year uh, was that I was shown a story. I was shown it. I was shown scenes from a story, and I was, mm. given, and I was given a dilemma. Uh, now, it's probably not an accident that it's a dilemma that I've been interested in in my nonfiction work, uh, which is which is the question of the battle of good against evil, mm. uh, that uh, we human beings have this thing called choice. We that is that is one of the fundamental aspects of being human. I'm not sure how much choice other members of the animal family have. I right. think I think some of them do actually, mm-hmm. but we it's a big issue for us. We we can always choose one path or another. We right down at minute level of day to day decisions, right up to the decisions that nations make. Right. Choices choices are involved, and and very often, those are choices sometimes small, sometimes large, between good and evil, between between dark and light, with choices that will either be nurturing and positive for you and those around you or that will, will lead to dark results. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a very interesting dilemma. I have a, a friend, um, James uh, Tiburon, who calls this realm, this world that we live in, uh, the university of duality. That, and I think that's a very interesting idea. Mm. A lot of people don't like the idea of duality and they prefer to think that all is one and there's sure. this lovely glow of light surrounding us all. But, but actually, uh, duality is a place, it's a teaching place. Mm-hmm. It's a place where, where we can learn and grow from our own mistakes, actually, and from the, from the choices we make. So this, this question of choice between good and evil. And, and secondly, what is, what is good and evil? Mm. Are there... Are, is it possible that there are spiritual forces at work in the universe, which some of which thrive on hatred and fear and suspicion, mm-hmm. sort of psychic vampires that want to bring out the worst in humanity? Uh, and are there other forces uh, that 
are filled with light and and love and seek to and 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 seek to allow us to be the best that we can possibly be where are those hiding at right now <laughs> well i mean you look at the middle east and it's like a yeah, perfect example it's of like a perfect both sides are like i'm sure america and its missiles and all that look just as evil yes. as isis and their beheadings looks to from the other side absolutely and it's amazing it really is like don't you see that you are both fucked yeah both absolutely fucked and this is and interestingly it's so much of it is being done in the name of quote unquote God, you know, and this has been so down the down the ages that people have uh, acted in what they believed was the name of God and the wishes and the interests of their God. And they've acted in horrendous, vile, wicked, dreadful, dreadful ways to 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 one another. Um, and. Now, again, we don't know what's going on. Is, are these simply projections of the human psyche? I don't think so. I think that we are immersed in an invisible sea of influences. And I think that's what shamans know. Shamans know that we cannot and do not function in this material realm, this three-dimensional world, without being influenced by many unseen realms. And shamans seek to grapple with those realms and deal with them in a, pro, in a proactive way. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in this subject. And, I'm very, and, and I've, I, in my nonfiction career, I spent quite a lot of time studying Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Which, which is a very don't get me started on the demiurge. The no, demiurge. Really excited, that's actually for those of you guys that oh. we have been obsessing you with the the, the the evil one who's trying to fuck everybody up. Comes courtesy from that was when I was going to my Graham Hancock binge, and right, that's right. where I got it from the yeah. whole Gnostic yeah. demiurge. So at risk so of at sense. risk of repeating things, but just to make a, a brief a brief Perfect. summary, yeah. the the Gnostics who were exterminated mm -hmm. by the the fanatical faction of of Christianity that had pulled on the jackboot of the Roman state mm -hmm. around three or 400 AD. The Gnostics had a completely different view on the entity that, that modern Christians call God. Right. Um, whether he's called Yahweh, uh, Jehovah, the Muslims called him Allah. Mm -hmm. um, this is the God of Abraham in all cases. The, the, the Islam absolutely recognizes and worships the God of Abraham, mm -hmm. calls him Allah and other names. Christianity calls him Jehovah or, or, or Yahweh. And of course, Judaism also. This sure. is the God of Abraham. Well, from the Gnostic point of view, the God of Abraham was not a God at all. Mm -hmm. uh, he was an imposter, uh, a trickster who had convinced mankind that he was God, but actually was demonic mm -hmm. and his and his purpose was to was to snuff out the divine spark within us and never allow us to realize that and when you get to grips with the gnostic material you suddenly realize my goodness what a radical what an incredible analysis this is because when you look and you separate yourself off from the talk that these religions have talked and look at the walk that they've walked mm -hmm. what you see is centuries of fear and hatred and suspicion and division and yep. and all of the problems that are coming home to roost in the modern world today go back to that god of abraham who has constantly been urging his followers to acts of mass murder, whether they are Jews, whether they are Christians, whether they are Muslims. And, and uh, we, we face the consequences of that in, in this divided world today, where people, because of their belief in this abstract entity, will actually go out and slaughter yep. other people yep. in the most cruel and ghastly manner. Packing the go. 
No. Getting ready to leave. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And how you don't call it a crusade, how you dare don't, just, and I guess it's, you know, for all the obvious reasons, yeah. but it's obviously what it is. It is obviously a crusade. They're calling us over, and we just jump like a bunch of lap dogs. Well, oh, more know, helicopters to sell. We'll be right over. The yeah. thing there is also that, it, in a way, your theology, doesn't matter what you argue, what you say, what you write, if your theology leads you to kill in the name of God... Mm what you are worshiping is a demon yeah, end of story it like, doesn't even matter what you're saying what yes. you're defending yeah. it's purely because that's what demons do right that's what they've always done if you look at mythology demons are in the business of multiplying human misery mm -hmm. and and they feed off that yep and that is what has been done in the name of this in the name of this entity mm -hmm. down the down the ages so i'm very interested in in all of this stuff and have, have subjected it to really ver very deep study over many many years um, so I guess that background was in my mind when I went mm -hmm. down to Brazil to drink ayahuasca. And what I was presented with was a story of the battle of good against evil, um, but, with, um, but in the frame of time. Mm. So that uh, it, 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 it's interesting with ayahuasca. Uh, many people have been given a creative impulse working mm -hmm. with ayahuasca. I can name quite a number of artists like Al Alex Gray mm -hmm. uh, or Martina Hoffman, for example, whose work has been transformed by their relationship with ayahuasca, and it's taken them off in a whole new direction of, of visionary art right. that they weren't exploring before. Um, now, I'm, you know, I'm not a painter. I'm not, I, don't, I can't paint to save my life. My, my medium is words, and what I was given was a, was a story. Mm -hmm. And that story showed two young women, one living 24,000 years ago in the Stone Age, and one living today in modern Los Angeles, uh, who are brought together because the essence of the story is that time is not an arrow. Mm -hmm. Time is not a straight line from past to present to future. That there, that it's a series of interlocking spirals and curves that interconnect and that different epochs influence one another and are connected directly to one another. Um, and, and so I have two young women, one 24,000 years ago, one today, who are brought together by a supernatural, a benign supernatural being, an angel, I call her the blue angel, um, to do battle with a demon who travels through time. Mm. And he is called Sulpa, and he is, uh, he is leading humanity, anatomically modern humans 24,000 years ago, to exterminate the last of the Neanderthals, mm. because the Neanderthals are pure goodness and light. And Rhea, my young heroine from 24,000 years ago, is one of the modern humans who realizes that they mustn't do this. Right. <clears throat> they must not allow it to happen. Uh, and, and that she must stand against that and stand against the forces, the, the huge, ferocious army that of, of misled human beings that Sulpa has led mm -hmm. into this, this terrible enterprise of, of ethnic cleansing, right. actually. As a matter of fact, but his purpose in destroying the Neanderthals in snuffing out that candle of light is to gain the psychic charge that will enable him to jump forward into the 21st century and multiply misery here. He's already present as an influence in the right. 21st century, but to take a physical form in the 21st century, that's what he needs to destroy the Neanderthals in 24,000 years ago. So it's a very, very strange series of ideas sure. that, came, that came to me uh, in, the, in a series of ayahuasca uh, visions. Right. And, and that's why I called the novel Entangled, because these, these two young women are entangled across time. Right. And, and they, they both... Um, they, they must both work together if they are to 
if they are to achieve it. And and in a way, the motto of the novel is that evil cannot always be defeated, but it can always be resisted. Right. And that's the choice that we can make at any time, at any moment in our in our lives. So it was a powerful emotional charge for me to enter into that story in terms of visions and actually seeing scenes mm -hmm. unfold before my eyes and getting a very strong kick or push from 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 ayahuasca that i should write this novel that i should write this novel you can say that about too many novels out there that they have the official ayahuasca stamp of approval <laughs> on it. Stamp, so yeah. that's something you and should you put know, on and the i cover. think this is something that we're going to see coming forward as more and more people work with mm -hmm. with ayahuasca i have a friend benton rooks who who talks about um entheodelic storytelling and uh, I think we're going to see more stories, just as we've seen so much art, I think we're going to see more stories that have been influenced by ayahuasca. And it may be the case that people who haven't drunk ayahuasca actually don't quite get those stories. Right, of course. You know, so, so one, may be, one may be speaking initially to a very small constituency. I'm not sure. It's funny, there's a, there's a, there's a moment in Entangled when the Demiurge crosses over into modern times mm -hmm. and he finds out that uh, Rupert Murdoch's already here. And <laughs> <laughs> it's yes. really incredible. Yes. So that's, check that out. That's how he went. Huh? Oh, man. You don't see it coming, you know? And he, the, the big eyeball comes Who'd across. He's like, you're story. already here. <laughs> he's all pissed off. Then he finds out about World War One and Two, and he's like, damn, so much misery, and I didn't get a taste of any Late of it. Late to the party. Late right. again. But I, what, I, what I tried to do in that novel was to was was first and foremost to tell a, a thrilling adventure story mm -hmm. uh, with with characters that we could identify with, and I'm I'm interested in strong female characters who are warriors, yep. um, you know, and who and who will not accept uh, to be put in some place, but who but who are, are insistent on making their way in the world and making their statement, and so these two female characters, Rhea in the twenty four thousand years ago, Leone in the twenty first century do encounter one another right. in altered states of consciousness. And, and um, part of the battle is also to overcome the darkness within themselves. That's, that's part of the story. So, so that, was, that was the first novel that I wrote. Mm -hmm. um, and it, and um, because writing a novel was a new enterprise for me, it took me quite a long time to, uh, to write it. What uh, I've moved on to since then is a series of three novels um, called War God, about the Spanish conquest of Mexico. And again, the underlying theme is the battle of good against evil. There's a lot of evil against evil there. So there's a lot of the good in between. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of evil against evil. Right. And, and, and again, what, what what I'm looking at is are there spiritual forces at work behind history? And it was interesting to research the background to Hernan Cortez, mm -hmm. the, the, the leader of the conquistadors, and to research the background to Moctezuma, the leader of the Aztecs. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to find out that both of them believed themselves to be in contact with supernatural entities. I mean, that's a historical fact. Right. They, right. They, they did believe that. Cortes believed himself to be guided by St. Peter. And Moctezuma uh, had regular psychedelic sessions, actually. Let's not pretend that psychedelics are always sweetness and light. Right. Sometimes, it depends on the intention you bring to the party, sometimes psychedelics can be used for very dark purposes, mm -hmm. and they were used for very dark purposes by the Aztecs, connected to sacrificial rituals. And Moctezuma would consume psilocybin mushrooms 
and in the mushroom trance would encounter the entity that he construed as the war god mm -hmm. of the Aztecs. The pr proper name for the Aztecs is the Mexica, by the way. Right. Um, but I'll call them the Aztecs because that's the name we're most familiar with. Uh, this is Huitzilopochtli, hummingbird at the left hand of the sun, who is the war god of the Aztecs. And Moctezuma encounters him in trance and um, is advised and guided by him as to what he should do, confronted by this strange apparition of 500 foreigners uh, who might themselves be gods, Moctezuma mm -hmm. is not sure, who've turned up on the coasts of the Gulf of Mexico in boats that move by themselves without paddles, who are white-skinned, who are bearded, who appear a lot like the god that is spoken of in myth called Quetzalcoatl, mm -hmm. who's prof who had been prophesied to return. All of this is historical fact. Right. In exactly the year that they landed, on the shores of the Gulf of Mexico. Yep. What is he to do with them? He's very afraid of them because the prophecy is that Quetzalcoatl will return and he will overthrow a wicked king, abolish the rituals of sacrifice and um, restore balance to the land. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite pan out. It that doesn't way. pan out yeah. like that because Hernan Cortes is no god of peace. No, he is a monstrous figure mm -hmm. in him in himself. I mean, at one level, You've got to admire, it's difficult not to, the sheer grit and resolve. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Of those 490 Spaniards, sure. it wasn't even 500, they're in 11 ships. Right. They have 16 horses with them, 16 cavalry, and they have 100 dogs of war. Um, all of these are things that the Aztecs have no idea whatsoever about. They also have steel weapons. Mm -hmm. They have some guns and cannon. Um, they are a technological army. They are, they are the result of 700 years of warfare against Islam right. in Spain. Yep. The Reconquista has just been completed a few years before Spain. If you were to look at a country, any country in the world that is the most ferociously militarized country in the world in the early 1500s, that is Spain. With that religious overtone. That With very strong the, religious right. overtones. They've been fighting a religious yep. war for 700 years and they've just won it. Yep. And they believe themselves sanctioned by God mm -hmm. to just do anything they like. And the Pope has said yes. The Pope has, has drawn a line down the map and given a whole chunk of the newly discovered Americas to the, to the Spanish, including right. Mexico. And they can just go get it. If, mm -hmm. they, if they've got the balls, you know, then they can go and get it. They've been told they can do that. And right. so C Cortez takes that license. He puts together a team of 490 men, um, all of whom are freebooters, chancers. Many of them are young men out for their first adventure. Um, but they're all skilled in warfare. Mm -hmm. and, and, they, and they have this martial frame of mind. And they have a scientific attitude to warfare, which the Aztecs do not. They, 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 um, their whole purpose of the Spaniards in a battle is to utterly destroy the enemy. Right. In a battle, the Aztecs' purpose was different. Their, their purpose was actually to capture enemies alive so that they could kill them later mm -hmm. <laughs> in sacrificial rituals, march right. them up the pyramid, uh, slice open their breastbone with a heavy blow from a stone dagger and tear out their hearts. Um, th th this was the terrible fate that awaited the captives of the Aztecs, but it meant that the Aztecs kind of messed around a bit on the battlefield. Sure. They, they didn't want to cut you down. They wanted to keep you alive so they could kill you later, which played into the hands of the Spanish, who of were course. just interested in killing everybody they saw. Um, but nonetheless, 
for 490 men to land in a, in a strange country where they have no resources, no reserves, nothing to call back on at all, mm-hmm. where they confront a gigantic militarized force because the Aztecs were uh, a huge military empire with hundreds of thousands of men under arms yep. who will do terrible things to you if they catch you. I have to say it takes guts to do that. Sure. And, and um, res- you know, a certain resourcefulness uh, to be willing to do that. Cortes goes so far as to as to burn all their ships. They just, he destroys his fleet so that there is no going back. There's no back. way back, right. There's no way back. Yep. He is going to, it's either conquer or die yep. as far as he's concerned. But what interests me is that in his dreams, Cortes is being guided by St. Peter. Mm-hmm. And St. Peter is driving him on to ever worse acts of violence and horror. And what I, what I realized that what was really interesting to explore here is could it be that the same supernatural entity who appears as the Aztec war god to Moctezuma takes on another disguise and appears as St. Peter to Cortez and that he's playing both men to maximize human misery in the Americas. That's what I thought was the genius premise of the whole thing. Because that's you. brilliant and it makes perfect sense yeah. too. It's not like it's this crazy strange premise. When you look at what the Aztecs were doing, when you yeah. look at what the Spaniards do, you're like, these guys are each other's photocopy. They yes. are yes. in the name of different stuff, yes. but they are doing the same thing. The same which thing. is one of the reasons why even to this day, you know, anybody who has like crazy totalitarian idea whether they are religious fundamentalists or whether they are, you know, your Stalin in Russia or, you know, the Nazis or something. I very glad of the fact that they never realize that they are all the same and join yes. forces. Because yes. if we think that having one of those guys at a time is a bad deal, yeah. having this. But the reality is that they are all the same. They They're hate the each same. other. Yeah. But, you know, whether you are a Stalinist communist, yes. a Nazi, a fundamentalist Christian, a fundamentalist yeah. The Muslim, ideology is just a means to an end. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same. <laughs> There's only one right way, ours. Yes. And we need to impose it on yeah. everyone else by exactly. drowning them in blood. Exactly. Do you this, ever wonder what would happen if the smallpox didn't come in to, to I mean... The Indians were very quick about adapting to horses yeah. and those sort of things. They were, you know, what guns? Oh, we get it. Yeah. And immediately yeah. within a generation, they were yeah. mastered it all. Yeah. If they could have survived those first few attacks and figured yeah. out, you know, we could still be fighting that fight. It was the biological weapons that, yeah. that yeah, ended that war. Uh, and and I've talked to historians about this. It's not impossible. It would have happened anyway, but it's not import- impossible that Cortes deliberately introduced uh, smallpox right. to to the to the Aztecs. It was, in other words, this, this was the first targeted use of a biological weapon in uh, modern warfare. Um, and and uh, smallpox, there was no resistance to smallpox in uh, Aztec society, and it decimated the 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 Aztecs. It was a really a really horrendous horrendous situation that that ensued but um, I think that Cortes would have defeated the Aztecs anyway I, I think he I think he would have they they never did actually adapt not the Aztecs they didn't adapt to the horse they oh. did eventually understand that horses were not supernatural beings because that was the initial thought that the you know when you see these things thundering down on you at 30 miles an hour they're very big on top of them. So there's this animal which they construed to be a deer of some kind, and on top of it is a human being. Is it a hybrid creature, like a satyr? Is it part, is it part like a, you, you know, is it part horse and, and part man? Um, or is it men mounted on horses? It took them a while to work that out. Secondly, they didn't have tactics 
to deal with heavy horse. Um, and again, this is something in European warfare. You had a very long period of learning how to handle the shock of a cavalry charge and of developing certain weapons and certain tactics that could actually stop a cavalry charge dead in its tracks. The Aztecs never got that. They just, they just weren't uh, able to, to do it. The ones who did respond to Cortes um, in, in a very effective warlike way were another people called the Tlaxcalans. And I, um, one of my one of the heroes of my story is the Tlaxcalan battle king called Xicotenca. Again, he's a historical figure. You can go see his statue in Tlaxcala, about a hundred miles from Mexico City, still today. He's an intriguing character, and he very smart. I mean, he knew right from the beginning that he was dealing with a man, not a god, and a very dangerous man. And um, he was an enemy of the Aztecs himself. The Aztecs preyed upon the Tlaxcalans and used them for human sacrifice. So the, <coughs> the logical thing would have been for Xicotenca to join forces with Cortes right away and go destroy the Aztecs. But when he, he was very far-sighted, and when he looked at the situation in Mexico and he looked at Cortes, he realized this was going to be doom, not just for the Aztecs, but for the whole culture of Central America. And there would be no coming back from it. And for that reason, against his own interests, it would seem, against his own immediate interests, he took Cortes on and he decided to fight him and he fought him tooth and nail. And there were incredible battles, which I describe in the second volume of the War God series, which is published on the 9th of October, 2014. War God Return of the Plumed Serpent, incredible battles between Cortes and Xicotenca. And Cortes came very close, really within a day of defeat. His, his men were saying to him, we can't go on with this any longer. We have to get out of here. The, the Tlaxcalans were driving them so hard. There was a, a famous episode where a Tlaxcalan warrior, who features one, as one of the characters in my story, actually beheaded a Spanish horse with a single blow of his uh, wooden sword. The, the swords were wooden paddles with um, obsidian blades inserted into the side. And he took the head right off a horse with one blow. And that just punctured the myth that these things were supernatural creatures. And the Tlaxcalans found there was a way they could, they could handle them. But Cortes resorted to terrorism. He burned whole villages. He threw men and women and children into pits filled with sharpened stakes. He set the dogs on them and had the dogs eat them. And the, the Tlaxcalan Senate actually forced Xicotenca, the battle king, to surrender. They said, we cannot continue with this anymore. Anyway, the Aztecs are our enemies. Surrender, join him. And Xicotenca was forced to do that, and he became Cortes's um, lieutenant in many, in many ways. But he always resented him, and, and later, much later in the story, he walked out on Cortes when, when Cortes was about to bring about the final doom of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital. Uh, by that point, the Aztecs were riddled with smallpox. Right. They were surrounded by the Spanish forces. They were con controlled in their city, and Cortes was ab about to break in. And, and Xicotenca said to him, you must now show them mercy. This is the time to show your heart and, and show them mercy. And Cortes said, no, I'm going to destroy them to the last man. And Xicotenca said, well, then you'll do it without me. And he took his men and walked out. And that's when, again, Cortes showed. You see, as this story goes on, Cortes just becomes a darker and darker character. Yep. And he sends a troop of horse after Xicotenca, and he captures him and hangs him on the spot. And, and so I think Xicotenca is rightly remembered as one of the great heroes of this, uh, of, of this story. And I've tried to pay, tr pay tribute mm -hmm. to him. 
I've also, uh, again, uh, women characters play, female characters play an important role in my story. Uh, one of them is another known historical figure, Malinal, who mm-hmm. became the mistress of Cortez uh, and his interpreter. She's a fascinating character. Right. Um, and and uh, really, Cortez d- does admit at one point that he could never have conquered Mexico if it Wait, hadn't no, no, been for right. Malinal, yep. that she was able to give him insights into the psychology of the nation that he was confronting. Um, and so the question to me as a novelist is why did she hate Moctezuma so bad that she really was going to use the Spaniards as her weapon mm-hmm. to bring him down? And she does that in a very calculated way. And as a novelist, I'm able to give her that motive. Of course. And that's why right, we... Because historically, we know that she did, but we don't we know don't why. We don't know why right. she did of it. Of course. And, and um, <clears throat> so we encounter her in the fattening pen, awaiting yep. slaughter, awaiting sacrifice, and with her a young Aztec witch called Tozi. Um, who, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but eventually they escape from the fattening pen and they, they play a key role right. uh, in, in, in the story that I tell in, in the three volumes of War God. Did you play at all with one of my favorite side character in the whole uh, Spanish invasion of Mexico that is really not important to the main story in any way, mm-hmm. shape or form, but I just love this tale is... Uh, Uh, Gonzalo Guerrero, the guy that they find. Very interesting. uh, I thought of using Guerrero as a character, Mm -hmm. but in the end I decided not to Mm -hmm. um, because I had so many other characters to play with. Now, Guerrero um, is the companion of Aguilar. Yep. um, But what happens is that 11 years before the Spanish conquest of Mexico, a ship is wrecked. A -hmm. Spanish ship is wrecked off the coast of the Yucatan. And there are 26 survivors um, who set out in, a, in one of the ship's boats. The ship sinks, but they go off in a, a rowing boat, effectively. And quite a lot of them die at sea, but eventually they're washed up on the coast of Spain. And uh, Sorry, the coast of uh, the Mexico, Yucatan. Right. They're washed up, and there they become the prisoners of the Maya. Yep. And the Maya then actually, I think there's about a dozen survivors at that point who've not died at sea. The Maya then eat most of them. Um, which is a horrific experience for these Spanish captives, but two of them survive. One of them is Guerrero, and the other is Aguilar. Um, And I decided to concentrate on on Aguilar. Actually, Guerrero became a a fighter against Cortez. Exactly. And his is a fascinating story, too. If I'd gone down that road, I would have... It would have taken me in a very different direction. I decided not to. I was more in, I was more interested in Malinal and Tozi. And you see, Malinal is connected to this because... When Cortez first landed, the first people he encountered were the Maya, not the Aztecs. And he couldn't um, communicate with right. them. And then he heard that there was a white-skinned, bearded man who was a captive of yep. the Maya on the mainland. And uh, by various means, he acquired, he got that guy. And that guy was Aguilar. And that's the key to everything, because otherwise, without, I mean, even with the diseases, even with the 490 super trained Spaniards, horses, whatever the hell, you're not going to beat an empire that can put in the field hundreds and thousands of people. Part of it was the ability through translating, the ability to make alliances with the ability to make alliances and and. uh, Cortez used language very mm-hmm. effectively. He was a he was a manipulator. Cortez had had uh, studied Machiavelli. I right. mean, he was uh, he was a Machiavellian player, and he understood psychological domination. But if you're going to psychologically dominate your enemy, you need to be able to speak to them. Of course. And uh, so it was really important to him to get a translator. And his first translator was Aguilar, okay. Hieronimo de Aguilar, who had been a prisoner of the Maya for eleven years, who hadn't been eaten, and who had survived. And and Aguilar 
Aguilar came over to Cortez, unlike Guerrero. Mm-hmm. Aguilar came over to Cortez and became his first interpreter. And so Cortez could speak to the Mayan chiefs with, uh, with Aguilar as the go-between. Then comes a great battle, which I describe in volume one of the War God series, War God Knights of the Witch, a great battle at a place called Potonchan on the Tabasco River. And uh, during that battle, Cortez faces gigantic Mayan forces right. and utterly destroys them, although it's touch and go for a while, mm-hmm. utterly destroys them. Um, and at the end of that battle, he is given um, as a token, as well as treasure by the Maya, uh, he is given 20 women, right? 20 women who will be bed slaves, cooks, whatever his men want, beautiful women who are given to his army as a gift, a peace gift, peace offering. Well, amongst those women is Malinal. She's she's one. Now, in my story, she has escaped from the fattening pen in Tenochtitlan, gone down to the coast to look for the returning feathered serpent, the, the, right. the return of Quetzalcoatl that the myths expect, um, and has been taken by the Maya uh, and is there is their prisoner. There's a whole backstory mm-hmm. to that. I don't need to go into here. And uh, so, she, but the historical fact is she, Malinal, is one of the 20 women who's given to Cortez. And Cortez does not immediately realize what a treasure has just been passed to him. Because having defeated the Maya, he is about to go meet the Aztecs. And the Aztecs speak a different language. That language is Nahuatl. Of course. Uh, They don't speak Maya. And Aguilar can't talk to them. When he, a few weeks later, when he encounters the ambassadors of the Aztecs, he's back at square one. He can't communicate with them. Aguilar is utterly useless. And that's when Malinal thrusts herself forward. It's an amazing moment, actually, and makes it clear. Listen, I speak Maya, and I speak Nahuatl. Yep. And she, she shows Cortez how it's to be done, that she will take the words of the Aztec ambassadors and translate them from Nahuatl into Maya, and then Aguilar will translate from them from Maya, Maya Spanish. into Spanish, yep. and, the, and the reverse in the other, in the other direction. Yep. So suddenly Cortez is able to talk to these guys and to start freaking them out, which is what he is just brilliant at doing. Um, and and Malinal is playing a key role in this. Now, she is so brilliant. She's such a clever woman um, that she is getting Spanish within days. She's, she's already starting to speak Castilian, the, the mm-hmm. Spanish language. And uh, within weeks, she's dispensed with Aguilar completely. She doesn't need him anymore. Right. And, and actually, the rivalry with Aguilar is an interesting aspect mm. of the story, too, because he was used to being Cortez's right-hand man, and suddenly he's redundant. He's yep. And, and not, not only that, but Malinar's in bed with Cortez as well. Literally. They become, right. <laughs> literally. They, become, they yeah. become lovers, and yeah. she becomes the mother of his, his child, Martin, Martin Cortez. And all the way along, she's whispering in his ear mm-hmm. and saying, this is what you need to do to handle Moctezuma. This is how you play him. She tells him the myth of Quetzalcoatl. She tells him, don't pretend to be Quetzalcoatl. Let them do that. Let them figure, let, let them think you're Quetzalcoatl. Right. You say what you are, but they'll think you're Quetzalcoatl. But play the role. Yeah. Play the role. Uh, at say one thing, do another, because their gods are tricksters. Right. They'll, they'll, th- that'll play right into them. And so she, she arms him with this knowledge, and that knowledge he then takes uh, straight into battle to, uh, to defeat the Aztecs. No, that's uh, the whole tale. There are so many amazing characters. There are so many. On the Guerrero thing, just as a reminder, those of you guys who haven't been listening to some of the early episodes, 
we had a story time about Gonzalo Guerrero and I believe it was Paul Clowiter who created the animation of the Guerrero story. So if you guys want to check it out on YouTube, just put the tale of Gonzalo Guerrero and will pop up with this great animation and us telling the tale. It, it was a fun one. But yeah, beside that, there are so many of these great characters that are it's an epic story. The thing about your fiction now is that one of the things that I heard you bring up before is that surprise, surprise, the publishing world is not keen on authors changing their directions. Not so at all. Especially, you know, you figure if you are a successful author, you have gained the freedom to do whatever you want because people yes. love you, right? No, suddenly no. you are caged to whatever made yes. you successful in the first place. Yes. You can never depart from it. The publishing so. industry very much wants to keep me in what for them is a productive and profitable box. They right. want to keep me writing nonfiction about historical mysteries because because publishing these days, the, I remember the time, I've been around long enough to remember when publishing actually was a courageous industry, mm -hmm. when there were editors with guts, you know, who would back a story because they believed in the story and they believed in the writer uh, and, and they weren't consulting with the salesmen and the marketing men. Right. Now all publishing firms are run by sales and marketing and they believe in, they think in terms of brands. Mm -hmm. Authors now are brands. Yep. Okay. So to go off brand from the marketing point of view is a very dangerous thing to do and they would rather keep you on brand. Uh, and therefore, they don't encourage authors to do different things. And the result is less and less novelty yeah. in the publishing world, just as there is less and less novelty in the Hollywood world. Right. Same, the same things at work, that people are afraid to go into new areas because they'd rather stick with a tried and trusted, trusted formula that works for them, that which, works commercially. Which is totally weird because to me, it's like if I love uh, somebody's work, I don't care what they are going to do next. No. I want to read them. Yeah, Whatever. Exactly. It doesn't matter what I you do. I do think, you know, to be fair, it? I do think there is a difference between fiction and nonfiction in the, in the terms of what readers want. With fiction, uh, yes, the author is important, but primarily when a reader buys nonfiction, mm -hmm. with non, let's start with nonfiction. When a reader buys nonfiction, when I buy nonfiction, sure. um, I am primarily buying it because of the subject. Sure. There's something there that. I'm interested in yep. that I want to know more about. Yep. Um, and yes, I might check out and see whether this is a, the person who's writing about it actually knows what he's talking about, but it's the subject that drives yep. me. With fiction, um, it's more author-driven. Yep. Be because here's what happens. We've, we've read an author and we liked his stuff or her stuff. That will then make us automatically trust the next thing that that person exactly. does. If we liked it before, we're going to go and buy the next thing that person writes. And th in that way, novelists build up a following, and mm -hmm. it takes and it takes you know can take quite a long time. Um, it was uh, it was interesting when when um, Stephen King tried his experiment with the Backman books. I don't mm. know if you know about that, mm -hmm. but but just just as an experiment, I mean Stephen King, ultimate he can do whatever huge he wants, selling, right, selling author. But he published a series of four novels under the name Richard Backman. I think mm -hmm. it was Richard. It was definitely Backman. I think Richard Backman, and. You know, the great Stephen King novels, but they're published under another name and nobody says this is Stephen King. And they had a slow start. His first his first novel sold a few thousand copies. Right. You know, instead of hundreds or millions, millions of copies, of it sold a few thousand copies. 
And he built it up slowly. So by the time he got to the fourth novel, he was selling maybe 25,000 copies of the novel because they were bloody good novels. But for Stephen King, that's still But for nothing. Stephen King, it's yeah. peanuts. Yeah, exactly. And then he announced who Richard Bachman actually was. And, then, and of course, they, the Bachman books course. then become huge best-selling hits in their own right because everybody trusts Stephen King of course. to give them a great... And I understand that. I understand I that. It. So in my novel writing... I'm doing two things difficult. First of all, I'm breaking from brand, mm -hmm. which means my publishers won't back me. They will be reluctant to support my novel writing activities, reluctant to put any publicity into it, right. um, reluctant to make any effort whatsoever. I mean, in Britain, I do have a major mainstream publisher who's publishing my novels, um, but I've had to show them that I can make these novels work, that people will buy them before they've been willing to to put a little bit of promotion behind them. In America, I've I've never found a mainstream publisher for my for my novels. Um, I'm not exactly self-publishing them in America, but my literary agent in London has a small imprint called Peach Publishing, and she has has brought out my War God series as an Amazon, uh, pretty much an Amazon exclusive. So they're available as a print book from Amazon or as an electronic book from Amazon, a paperback print book or an electronic book. But you can't really go buy them in bookstores. Wow, that's insane. Yeah. That you, just, well, never mind if there are no more bookstores anyway. So well, bookstores are, bookstores are fairly. Much, I believe it's possible to order the print edition through a bookstore, but it's complicated. The only way you can really buy them is on is on uh, Amazon. And so, you know, what I'm, what I'm trying to do is to... I understand this. I understand why should a reader uh, automatically trust Graham Hancock just because they liked him as a nonfiction writer? Why should they assume that Graham Hancock as a novelist will be any good? You know, they need to try me out. And and if they don't, if they do like me, right. hopefully they'll come back. And if they don't like me, well, bye bye, Graham Hancock, the novelist. And you that's know? fine. But to me, <laughs> yeah. is if I've read your nonfiction stuff and I like it, yeah. If nothing else, I'm curious to see what the hell you yes. do with fiction. Yeah. So you can buy one book, and yes. then again, you decide, eh, no, stick to fiction and stick to non-fiction, non -fiction, and yeah. you're done. But you give it a chance. Yeah. To me, the whole idea that publishers believe that readers who love your non-fiction stuff who never buy your fiction yeah. thing, it just too stupid to even contemplate. Well, no, but weirdly, it turns out to be true. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I do have a I do have a very large following of people mm -hmm. who follow my, my nonfiction books, but only a tiny percentage of them, even though they are aware of my fiction, have even bothered to have a look. Why they, do you think? I think it. I think in a strange way, the analysts in the publishing industry are right. You know, mm. people, the re, those readers do feel that they value me for my nonfiction and they don't want to, they don't even want to. And, and also many people who enjoy reading nonfiction actually define themselves as people who don't read novels that's the other that's the other thing there is a there is a genre i'm writing in the genre of fantasy adventure sure. and epic adventure and that is a strong genre yeah uh, but most of the people who read that kind of novel are not big non-fiction readers sure. so there's a bit of a crossover here to to deal with i i'm just hoping um that the word will get around i mean i've got on amazon.com the u.s amazon i've got um close to 300 uh, pretty much all five-star reviews right. from, from, from readers. That shows that You've readers You've been do... busy on Saturday nights, huh? <laughs> right in your own. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, in this sense, the people who have bought my book, who do know my story, right. have supported me yeah. by taking the trouble, if they enjoyed the book, to go and write a review. Some some people didn't, and there's some, there's some one-star reviews there too, but sure. the, the average is 4.7 stars. Right. Um, and you can't make that up. No, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a, lot of, a lot of reviews. So that I'm, I'm just hoping that the word will get around and that more people will dip their toes in the water and try out my fiction and see whether it, 
it takes them somewhere and it's interesting to read. I hope it will be. And that over a period of years, the, the interest will build up and my fiction will, will start, uh, you know, getting a, a, large read, a large readership. And I've tried to do a number of things. And I'll make this offer on your show as, as well. I also made it on Joe Rogan's show recently, which is um, if you go to my website, which is grahamhancock.com, um, you can't miss the War God page. Right. There's a link to it right off the front page. Go to that, um, and you'll come to the War God hub page, which shows the covers of War God 1 and War God 2 in the UK, in the US, mm-hmm. in Canada, and links to, to those. Um, if you are a, a listener to this show and you write to me at wargoddedications at gmail.com and if you scroll down on that hub page you'll find the details of this mm-hmm. you don't need to remember it it's just go to that page the wargod page scroll down and you'll see that email address write to me at that email address and i will send you a what is called a book plate a signed dedicated book book, book plate i'll i'll sign i'll sign it and you can, and that that's a label that they can then be placed inside the book what i can't do this time what i did do with war god 1 uh, but I didn't realize how big the uptake would be. I ended right. up getting about 5,000 emails. And I did, <laughs> I, I'm not kidding, and I did actually, One. I did actually, because I, I respect my readers. Yeah, and and I'm, I'm nothing without my readers, of you know. This is, it's important for an author not to take his or her readers for granted. Absolutely. I respect them. I replied personally to every one of them. Right. And I got, I got engaged in, in quite a lot of back-and-forth correspondence because sometimes that reply will generate course, more replies. And it, was, it, it became a major operation. I had time during 2013 to do that. Now in 2014, 2015, because I'm also writing a big new nonfiction right. book, I don't have time to get, with regret, to get involved in that personal correspondence. So what I can say is that I will be home from very extensive travels uh, late in October and that write to me now, you show proof of purchase that you've either pre-ordered mm-hmm. volume two of War God or you've ordered volume one of War God, which is available now. The what, Volume two will be ready on the 9th of October. Amazon don't take your money until they actually send right. you the book, by the way. Pre-order the book or order volume one. Show me the proof of that. Don't forget to send me your postal address. This mm-hmm. is the other thing. A lot of people write to me, don't send me their postal address. How can I send yeah, them the book place if they don't? You'll get the book from Amazon and you will receive from me during November by postal mail uh, the signed book plate, which you can then place inside your book. But with regret, I can't correspond more, yeah. than, more than that just because I'm too busy. The other day was funny. I was, um, I, it was my writing day. I was all excited. I had five hours to work mm-hmm. on my writing. I'm like, great, awesome. I st- start at 9 a.m. and by 12.30, I haven't even opened the file because yes. I realized between Twitter, Facebook, yes. email, phone calls. I corresponded with 73 people exactly. back and forth. Exactly. And I'm like, no wonder I can't get shit yeah. done. You know, it's like all my time <laughs> because is Because you, you actually become a full-time letter writer. Right. You know, Which that, is mean, it's good it's because great. you want the human it's, contact. You want it. But you also want to be able to do something yes. else in yes. life. Yes, because that, that human contact is is connected to the work yep. you do. And it shouldn't, it shouldn't come to the point where it overwhelms that work so that you can't do the work anymore. Exactly. It's difficult to find the balance. Yep. This is the new world that we that we live in Um, and it's an interesting new world it's in it's interesting to have this very direct Mm -hmm. communication through Facebook Um, off the opening page of my website which you get to on grahamhancock.com there's a link to my Facebook author page I've now got 170,000 likes on that if you click like and click get Mm -hmm. notifications you get all 
the, and I post regularly on, right. on Facebook. Well, this has freed me from the big media. I don't need big newspapers or, or exactly. even you know big TV stations anymore. I, I, I can I can talk directly to 170,000 people who are interested in my work. Yep. Um, and uh, there's also a link on that front page to my talks and events. I'm doing a lot of talks and events in the US, then in South Africa in the uh, latter half of October uh, and in the UK in November. So. I'm sure you're going to have uh, you're going to be welcome with open arms at the TED talks again. Where <laughs> <laughs> yes, the TED again. What a way TED shut themselves in the foot. Again. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. won't go there because no, that's we the won't. topic that we of course. But has thank come you, out. Ted. Yeah. I'm very grateful to TED for for taking my talk off YouTube. Yeah, it was, it, it was a very very great thing that they did, and, and, it, and it opened up work, a huge right? it opened up a huge debate and and interest in all of this. But yeah, for the whole background to Graham's TED talk, listen to his podcast with Rogan with Duncan Trussell there's there's a great tale there that shows you it's funny because I had a Ted hating moment before knowing any of this stuff right. just based on vibe there was something that was just rubbing me wrong yes and after that I was like that's exactly what I felt you yes. know there's a difference between image and reality sometimes yes. yeah, yeah. You know, they're great at image and they're really bad at reality huh. yeah precisely mm. what was but, the uptake of fingerprints oh, like back in the pretty much pre-internet days. Back in the pre-internet days. A lot of radio? Well, see, uh, yes, there was a lot of radio. There was a lot of TV. Uh, fingerprints, you know, was had quite an impact. Um, and uh, and I can I can remember two of my editors in particular. We're talking, the book was published in 1995, so I'm dealing with my editors from 1993 onwards with this book. And there were two editors in particular who really took a big risk on that book. Um, one in America and one in Japan. Nobody knew what, what that book was going to do. You know, it might not have it might not have worked at all. That was how it was. You had courageous editors then, Jim Wade at Crown. You know, who 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 put the company behind the book, even though other people were saying to him, "This is an unknown author. We don't know what's going to happen." Um, and and my editor in in uh, Japan, Jun Nita, a wonderful wonderful guy. Um, from a small company who took Fingerprints of the Gods on in Japan, uh, which had only, by the way, published computer books before that. Um, but he just had an instinct that this book was going to work. And he committed that small company to $100,000 of advertising in the national press in Japan. And when he made that commitment, and he forced it through the company with the power of his personality. He then wrote up his letter of resignation, and he kept it in his pocket for the next six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but the result of that was that the book became a huge number one bestseller in Japan and sold two and a half million copies in hardback in Japan and um, completely transformed the fortunes of that small company. Yeah. So his courage and his gut feeling as an editor absolutely paid off in the end for, for him. But you cannot get editors to do that now. They yeah. will not take those risks. It's amazing that that was, the, that was the moment of the comets too. I don't know if you remember, but right during the middle of that, yeah. I think you dropped at the right moment where people's Well, we had Shoemaker sort of Levy 9 in 1994, which hit Jupiter. And then Hiyakataki yes. and, and came on. lit up the sky. Lit up the sky. I think people were searching for bigger answers yeah. at that moment. It well, like it's interesting actually. Drop. Yes, they were. There was, there was something in the air, um, not only a comet, <laughs> But, but other things too, like ideas, because uh, we had John Anthony West 
and Robert Schock working on the geology of the Sphinx. We had Robert Boval, all these people have become close friends of mine, looking at the astronomy of ancient Egypt and seeing that monuments on the ground were reflecting much more ancient patterns of stars in the sky. Uh, we had Rand and Rose Flemath in Canada who were, who were looking at the earth crust displacement theory of Charles Hapgood and coming up with the novel idea that Atlantis might have been in Antarctica. There was a whole range of interesting new ideas and part of what I did in Fingerprints of the Gods um, was to put all of that together into a synthesis um, and and to catch the, the the spirit of the moment and say there's a bigger picture here which which uh, when you bring all of this together you suddenly it suddenly hits you you are looking literally at the fingerprints of the gods at something which has something which we have forgotten because we are a species with amnesia yeah it was it was a very interesting time and now is an interesting time that's why I'm doing uh, I'm working on a sequel to Fingerprints of the Gods, which is going to be called Magicians of the Gods, and which will be published if I can hold body and soul together and actually complete the writing without collapsing, you know, because I, I think I'm getting older, you know, and my, I, my, my, I like to think I have a lot of energy, but I've got a lot of writing commitments on my plate at the moment and, and big research work to do. But in theory, I deliver that, that book uh, to the publishers. I have no problem in getting big publishers for my nonfiction. All, all, they all they're ready, to, ready to jump on that bandwagon. <laughs> um, I have to deliver that book to the publishers around about April of next year, and they aim to bring it out before the end of 2015, um, which would be 20 years after Fingerprints of the Gods was mm -hmm. first published. Wow. Um, maybe it'll slip into 2016, but I think it'll be 2015, late 2015. And, and you know, it's not going to be an updated version of Fingerprints. This is a new book. It's a completely new book. And that's why it's being done. It, it, it's convenient that it's 20 years after Fingerprints of the Gods. But the fact is, it's just a whole range of exciting new evidence which is out there and which I've been, I've been deeply into for the past year. I've done huge travels around the world. And I feel very lucky to have the opportunity to do that. I've read a ton of them, and I wonder which is the one that's most compelling lately. I mean, we had the Israel Wall just like yesterday. Just like yesterday. Day. Like a Turkey huge, seems like the yeah, one just... a huge structure in in Israel. Which, like, how did anybody miss that? You yeah. know, <laughs> and and but but Turkey. There's there's there's. I would say it's a whole range of things. But if I would pick two actual sites, I would say one of those sites, of course, is Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, uh, which turns out to be more than twelve thousand years old. Which is a gigantic megalithic site that was deliberately buried by whoever made it 10,000 years ago, thus sealing it off and creating a time capsule uh, where there's no doubt about the dating. Uh, and suddenly, archaeologists, because it's mainstream archaeologists who found this and excavated it, uh, Klaus Schmidt at the German Archaeological Institute, unfortunately Klaus passed away just a couple of months ago, but I spent a lot of time with him on the site last year. Uh, and what he what he shows me is that the stuff they've exposed is just which is four huge stone circles is just one fiftieth of what remains beneath the ground that they've picked up with ground penetrating radar. Wow! Um, and of course, as a mainstream archaeologist, I did an extensive interview with him, which I'll report in the in the book. But he he was reluctant. I said, "What does it feel like um, to be the archaeologist who's rewriting human history?" And he was very cautious. You know, he said, "I don't want to say that." He said, "He said maybe." what I'm doing is adding a new chapter to history. Well, I actually think he, that was over modest. I think it is rewriting history because we have no, there is no model of history which allows hunter-gatherers to create uh, structures on this right. scale. So speaking of which, for those 
who are not as familiar with your work yet, just so that they get a sense. You know, one of your key arguments in Fingerprints of the Gods and a lot of your non-fiction work mm-hmm. is basically this idea that human history as we know it is a portion of human history and that this evolution from hunter and gatherer to progressively more complex societies hiding the fact that before that there was way more com- there was way more complexity before yes. and the collapse yes. and then a startup again. Yes. In a, I know I'm asking you the crazy stuff because of, of you write you know big books to yeah. discuss all these. So yeah. give us the 40 second version is probably not the mm. easiest thing. But in a nutshell, what sort of your timeline of human history beside what we currently uh, accept You're at right. the academic historian level? What happens that academic historians don't cover, refuse to recognize that you feel that there's strong evidence okay. for? It's all connected to the mystery of the last ice age. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all connected to that. Um, and one of the things that has been coming out in the last five, really six years, since 2007, close to seven years now, the latest information is the discovery of uh, nanodiamonds scattered all over the world, which is a sure signature of a massive comet impact. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, been, what's been coming out is that towards the end of the last Ice Age, okay, I need to give a time frame. Sure. The Ice Age, as we know it, sets in, begins to set in about 125,000 years ago. Okay. By that point, we already have anatomically modern humans on the planet, Mm-hmm. People who uh, physically look like you and I, but their, their behavior, judging from the archaeological record, seems very archaic and very and very. They're not showing any sign of lateral thinking or invention at all. But they are there. Mm-hmm. Ice Age sets in gradually. Northern Europe and North America, and actually many other parts of the world, are covered with a huge ice cap. Uh, it's hard to imagine this now. It's hard to imagine nor- North America. Um, as far south as New York, you know, covered with uh, two-mile-deep ice, mountains of ice. Same in in Europe. All the big centers of habitation in Europe, um, down as far as the southern part of France, are covered with two-mile-thick ice mountains. Um, This holds steady, sets in about 125,000 years ago, reaches its maximum extent 21,000 years ago. So Mm -hmm. we're entering into more recent history here. Then it starts very gradually at first to to melt down. There are some climate changes taking place. There are two or three big episodes of flooding, but then something really radical happens at what appears to be quite close to the end of the last ice age, and we can put an exact date on it. It's 12,980 years ago. Mm give or take five years. And we can do that because of the Greenland ice cores, which allow you to date precisely these events. Something very radical happens. There's a huge episode of flooding, really horrendous. And then the warming trend that we've been seeing for the past 10,000 years reverses, Mm. and the Earth goes into a, a radical, instantaneous deep freeze. And geologists call that deep freeze the Younger Dryas. Until recently, they didn't know why it happened, but it lasts until 11,600 years ago. In other words, it lasts for about 1,300, 1,400 years, right. and then the warming trend resumes. We have more flooding, and a thousand, by a 1,000 years after that, all the ice is gone, and the ice age is over. Right. Um, now, what has happened in the last uh, decade is we've understood what caused the Younger Dryas, and it was 
definitely a comet impact. Rather like Shoemaker-Levy 9, which broke up into multiple fragments and hit Jupiter, mm -hmm. we had a fragmenting comet that interacted with the orbit of the Earth. And the first question was, why isn't there a large crater right. if we were hit by a comet? The answer to that question is that the largest fragment of the comet hit the North American ice cap. Hmm. It hit those mount. It hit that mountainous pile of ice, right. and the crater was in the ice, right. and it and it therefore not in the land. But what it did was, it uh, instantaneously liquidized m massive volumes of ice mm -hmm. and produced huge, huge flooding. And when I go on from from here, I'm going up to Portland, Oregon, and I'm then meeting uh, a brilliant researcher called Randall Carlson, uh, and he and I are going to do a journey. Uh, across North America, following the southern tip of the ice of the former ice cap, and he's going to show me the evidence on the ground of the really horrific outburst flooding, mm -hmm. the, the the terrible flooding that resulted from that comet impact. And Randall is far ahead of his time uh, because he, looking at the the scars on the landscape, he felt that the old theory of why that flooding occurred didn't explain the ferocity of the flooding. The old theory was that ice melted slowly and accumulated in glacial lakes on top of the ice cap. The glacial lakes eventually broke the ice dam and burst out and flooded the landscape. What he always felt was that it was something much more dramatic than right. that. And in the last few years, he's been proven right. It was a comet impact mm -hmm. that produced that flooding. So so my, my wife, Santa, who's a photographer, and I are going to travel with Randall and another researcher, and we're going to go across, and they're going to show us the scars on the landscape, mm -hmm. the detailed evidence of this of this horrific flooding that, that happened. Um, and that's actually the last big research journey that I'm doing for Magicians of the Gods, and then I, then I get back to the writing in a big way. Would that have wiped out anybody in North America or would have somebody well, still been around? It was cataclysmic on a global scale, not just in North America. Mm -hmm. uh, in North America, what we see is the extinction of the megafauna, right. uh, the mammoths yep. and, and other such large, mm -hmm. large cre creatures of the Ice Age. They are gone in a blink of an eye. Um, we see what is recognized by archaeologists as the Clovis culture, uh, as the first, if you like, as far as they're concerned, Stone Age culture of North right. America, which goes extinct, um, loses its identity at, at any rate. Uh, but it's not only in North America, it's be be over, because right. what happened was that that comet impact, there were multiple fragments, and yes, initially there was instant flooding, but then a huge pall of dust is thrown into the upper atmosphere, and it completely enshrouds the Earth. Right. The Earth is surrounded by a thick dust cloud. That cuts off the rays of the sun, the, and that's why the Earth then goes into the deep freeze called the Younger Dryas, because the sun can't get through. Mm -hmm. um, and it's that deep freeze, those centuries of darkness, that uh, destroy the megafauna, wipe out recognized uh, hunter-gatherer cultures of that right. period, and I believe also lost us a whole much more advanced civilization. Um, and I, that's why I say we're a species with amnesia, because I think that the, that the lost civilization that I've been tracing the tracks of for the last 20-plus years uh, primarily lived along coastlines, uh, was primarily a maritime civilization, and was the most radically affected by the meltdown of the Ice Age. And the, ice, the meltdown of the Ice Age swept the Earth clean. It's not surprising that we find very few remnants right. uh, of, this, of this earlier civilization. What we are finding, I believe, are the traces left behind by survivors of that civilization. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's what The Great Sphinx is. Mm -hmm. I think The Great Sphinx, Robert Schock and John Anthony West are right. The Great Sphinx was subjected to thousands of years of heavy rainfall and therefore cannot have been built in 2500 BC when there was no such rainfall in Egypt. It's much older. Right. It dates back, we think. I, I, I've also worked on this with Robert Boval and looked at the astronomy of the Sphinx. I won't go into details. It's in all my previous books. But we think that the Sphinx dates back to 12,500 years or thereabouts, somewhere exactly in that window. And I stated this clearly in fingerprints of the gods that now we know what that window is it's right. the it's the window that that, that that begins with the comet impact follows a deep freeze and ends with the younger dryas mm -hmm. wipes out a whole civilization i think survivors settled in giza they created a node there uh, and and it's interesting that there's examples of early agricultural experimentation seems to be experimentation i think they already knew what they were doing the view at the time when I published Fingerprints in 95 and Robert Schock and John Anthony West pr presented their work mm -hmm. was how can, how can we claim that the Sphinx is the work of a lost civilization? If, if, if it were, surely there would be other monuments around the world which would also be on large scale and would be right. more than 12,000 years old. In 95, we didn't have Gobekli Tepe. Now we do. Gobekli Tepe, no archaeologist can deny it. It is 12,000 years old. It may be even older once we dig up the other areas of it, you know. And yeah, what do they make of it? Like all the sort of standard academic historian crowd that's not going to be jumping up and down with joy or reading mm. your books and they tend mm. to sort of, I don't want to see it, it's not real, pseudoscience, whatever yeah. your excuse is. How do they respond to something like a discovery like this? An like, uncomfortable shuffling of feet mm. and a desperate effort to fit it into the existing paradigm. Mm. Uh, but there have been... You can't, because it's, it's like... You can't together, fit it in. You have to, it busts the paradigm. Right. It busts the paradigm. Yeah. Busts it completely. And, and Gobekli Tepe isn't alone. Another site that I've been following with great interest for the last year is Gunung Padang in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's interesting when you look at the Ice Age story of Indonesia, when we look at the map today, we see the Malaysian Peninsula, and then we see the string of the Indonesian islands, Sumatra and Java, Flores mm -hmm. and so on, a whole bunch of, of islands. Um, but if you go back into the last Ice Age, you find that there weren't islands or a Malaysian Peninsula. There was a gigantic continent there, right. huge continent, bigger than Europe, you know, which is which is sitting there and which is flooded exactly in that period between 12,980 yeah. and 11,600 years ago. The worst flooding actually follows the rewarming phase 11,600 years ago. And, and this vast continent, which geologists call Sunda land from the Sunda shelf, that vast continent goes underwater. And the Indonesian islands are at the southern edge of it, and they're the high land. Mm -hmm. They didn't get flooded. And um, in uh, Java, in West Java, uh, about three hours drive from the city of Bandung is an incredible site called Gunung Padang that, uh, that a, a courageous Indonesian geologist uh, ha has been working very hard on for the last several years because he, he became convinced that the site was a man-made pyramid with a relatively recent megalithic structure on top of it. Uh, and he then proved that with remote sensing data. And now he's faced huge opposition from Indonesian archaeological establishment, but he's now taken it to the presidential level, mm -hmm. and he's got presidential clearance to excavate that site thoroughly. Wow. And what the remote sensing shows is chambers inside it, uh, and they're bringing up carbon dating of material that goes back 26,000 years, right back into the depths of the last Ice Age. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a game-changer too. We'll see. The, results, the, res the final results of the excavation 
investigation wait to wait to come out, but the initial investigation is very is very promising. Um, I think it's I, my own hunch is it's going to be right up there with Gobekli Tepe as one of those sites that can't be fitted into the existing paradigm, and uh, leaves us with no choice but to reconsider our story of history and consider the possibility that we have forgotten a hugely important episode of our story, and that as all the myths and traditions of the world maintain, there was an advanced earlier civilization. And by advanced, let's put that in inverted commas, I don't mean a civilization that necessarily went down our technological mm -hmm. route. They may have done things in a very different way. Who knows what powers of the mind sure. uh, could have been cultivated by a different kind of culture. We've you know, followed the path of mechanical advantage very, very closely. We right. we think in terms of machines, in terms of, of physical tech, maybe in doing that, we've allowed to lapse certain powers of the human mind, right. which which perhaps another culture activated. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that's so, and that's partly why I'm calling the sequel Magicians of the Gods, because at a certain level, science begins to look like magic. So the evolution of this more advanced civilization would have been more advanced compared to what happened yes. like 8,000 years ago or something, would have been right smack in the middle of the Ice Age. Yeah, it would have been in the Ice Age. So uh, and there's an interesting interaction with bits of that period that archaeologists do recognize. For example, the painted caves mm -hmm. of southern Europe, which I've done a lot of work sure. on in, a, in another book of mine, a book called Supernatural. I've had the opportunity to visit more than 30 mm -hmm. of those caves. Look at it. Now, if there were an earlier civilization, first of all, it's not odd that hunter-gatherers on our planet should coexist with an advanced civilization sure. because that happens now. It's happening right now. Exactly. We we have an yep. advanced civilization and we have hunter gatherers in the Amazon, some of whom don't even know we exist. Absolutely. So there's nothing surprising about that. Uh, but secondly, you would expect there would be some contact, right. and there's there's very interesting evidence of that in the in the painted caves, and actually some of the motifs at Gobekli Tepe. At Gobekli Tepe, you're looking at huge pillars of stone, uh, in some cases weighing up to 50 tons, mm -hmm. uh, which have been arranged into these just majestic stone circles, and the pillars have carvings on them, and some of the motifs are quite similar to the imagery that we see in the painted caves, so there's wow. an interesting crossover there. Right. Um, and, and, you know, another area that I believe deserves much further work, and which I'm going to be looking at, because I've, again, I've had an interest in that through mm -hmm. my other work, is the Amazon jungle, the Amazon rainforest, um, because as the tragic clearances of the rainforest occur, we start seeing huge earthworks emerging, stone circles, right. evidence of great cities in the Amazon itself. I think there's a whole untold story there that remains to That's come out. powerful. How did you get into all this? Because, I mean, you did it about 20 years ago. So yeah, still... I, got, I got into it um, in the, the 1970s okay. and 1980s. I was, I was pr initially involved in current affairs journalism okay. with very much with a focus on Africa mm -hmm. and then um, in uh, in 1981 I published my first book which was a travel book called mm -hmm. Journey Through Pakistan in those days sure. it was possible to travel everywhere in Pakistan in complete safety I had a right. wonderful experience in Pakistan I wrote a travel book with just a couple like of now. photographers right mm. yeah just like now, just like now. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a travel book called Journey Through Pakistan I worked with Muhammad Amin and Duncan Willits who were the photographers and, and we, we produced this this large book and that's when I realized I liked writing books. Yeah. Um, I liked it much more than writing news stories. And I, and I began, while supporting myself doing other things, to write, to write books, hmm. which were, were mainly uh, current affairs books in the, in the 80s. And then 
I've told this story many times, but I I came across by chance Ethiopia's claim to possess the lost Ark of the Covenant, mm. and it was that process. It was a process. Right. I got drawn into the how on earth could this country in the Highlands, remote country in the Highlands of Africa, have an object like the Ark of the Covenant for the Bible? Well, that ultimately ended up in my first non-fiction book about a historical mystery which was the sign and the seal mm -hmm. and that's when i realized i really came home to me that the mysteries of the past are where i want to do my work that's not great. i'm not that interested in current affairs anymore that's brilliant there's yeah. i don't know if you are even aware of that there's a italian comic book i don't know if they still publish it or not i grew up reading it so right it was a, right called the martin martin mystery martin mystery or something like that right i don't that's know it basically I don't want to say a ripoff, but let's say inspired by your stuff. Okay. The that's main great. character is this guy who's exploring all of these uh, sort of right. past mysteries, not acknowledged by yes. official science. And of course, because you need to have a good guys, bad guys story, there's this uh, group known as the Men in Black who are uh, out there to suppress any sign indicating that there has been a civilization that evolved before and crashed. Right. And right. part of it because you would upset the existing order and blah, blah, mm, blah. Ah, how it's interesting. Like, I wish somebody would do that in the English language. Yeah. You know, they may have translated it. I'm not sure. I remember, you know, in yeah. Italy, I remember growing up reading all that stuff. If you get word of any translation, please let me know. I will. I'd like to, I'd like I to have a look at that. I will check that out. Definitely. Yeah. It's interesting. My Fingerprints of the Gods was turned into to a manga uh, edition as well in Japan. Nice. And in addition to the hardback, they did it as a as a cartoon book, and it was. Uh, I think it's a great vehicle actually for telling stories. You know? it's really Absolutely, good. why not? Yeah. It's a great skill. It's a great skill to actually make that work in comic form, especially when you're dealing with quite in depth information. But they seem to have done a good job of it in Japan. Now, since I don't want to keep you forever, I'm just gonna. Mm, there's one more thing that really has nothing to do with anything of okay. what we've been talking about, but just I'm curious to take, today I'm in a dark mode, so I'm curious okay. to how you deal with one of the main problems that all human beings have to come to terms with mm -hmm. at one point or another, which is, you know, we live in a universe in which ultimately we lose everything we love, mm -hmm. everything we care about from, you know, our own self, our own yep. body, people we love, everything got to be taken away from us. Mm. Many people their solution is, you know, hide a head in the sand, don't think about it. Mm. Okay, I mean, if that's... Clearly that doesn't work for everybody. Mm. Um, what's your take on it? How do the you... The mystery of death? Th yeah, that, the fact that impermanence, you know, the fact that nothing, yeah. Yeah. we get to keep, yeah. that everything got to be taken away. Well, I mean, it's the ultimate mystery. No. We don't know, we don't know the answer to mm -hmm. it. And again, here is a battle in our society between materialist science which says that we are nothing more than meat. Right. You know, we, we may be reduced literally to the sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. There is that we are just an accident of chemistry and biology. We have, have these brief lives and we're, and we're snuffed out and we go and that's the end of our story. Materialist science has to think that way right. because it sees consciousness as um, an accidental byproduct of brain activity. The brain activity being primarily about survival of the fittest. Uh, that's how the big brain evolved. And, and we have this accidental thing called consciousness mm -hmm. as a result. But all of the ancient traditions of the world say, say opposite, say different, say that we are incarnated in these physical bodies, that consciousness actually comes first, that the soul, the spirit, is what we are, that right. we are spiritual beings, as the cliche goes, in you know, living a human experience, that we're, we're, right. we're incarnated here. Um, and... It, 
actually, there's nothing really to say that that idea is wrong. Sure. You know, materialist scientists scoff at it, but what do they know? No. You know, I mean, what, what, what actual experiments have they done which prove to them that there's no life after death? Right. How can they, how can they so easily dismiss uh, all of the anecdotal information of near-death experience. I had a near-death experience myself. I left my body at the age of 16 after a massive electric shock. Mm. I, I have had the experience of being outside my body and looking down on it at a time when uh, I was, ex if not dead, extremely close to dead. Um, and this, mine is a minor experience but by comparison with others which have been thoroughly documented where the person is flatline on the mm -hmm. ECG and is having experiences. Well, if, the, if your consciousness is purely an artifact of your brain activity, you can't have consciousness when your brain is dead, but yet it appears we do. So we have to consider the possibility that actually the ancients were right and that consciousness, in, that we are here in this physical realm, in these physical bodies, to undergo a learning and growth experience. That, that, that it, it may even be that the material world is a creation of the spirit world, if you like. Right. Um, that there are certain things that you need physical form and consequences uh, in order to learn those lessons. That this is a place of teaching and, hmm. and, and lessons. In that case, we do go on, right. you know. We need not think that we, that we stop. Now, again, the materialists, whenever I say something like that, the, the immediate reaction of the materialists, of the, and that's what I call them, and that's what they call themselves, is sure. materialism, materialist reductionism. Yeah. It's a very hard line in science, and it probably represents the majority view of science, that there is nothing more mm -hmm. to the experience of life than, than matter. Um, what they say is, oh, you know, you're just seeking comfort by imagining that your life will somehow, that your consciousness will somehow go on. That's a comforting thought to you. And honestly, I can only reply to that, no, it is not a comforting thought. It's a very worrying thought. Why? It's a deeply disturbing thought because then it means that everything I've done in my life, right and wrong, counts mm -hmm. and will have consequences and effects on what happens to be next. Right. That you don't get this through this life with a free pass. That you are required to account for yourself. Sure. Then it's then it's, it actually means that you have to examine every issue of your life. And that's why I'm grateful to ayahuasca uh, for giving me this perspective which I didn't have before because I, I was quite indifferent to spiritual matters, I think. Mm -hmm. um, apart from a long period of induction in the ancient Egyptian texts, which are very interesting. These were m masters of the mystery of life and death, the ancient Egyptians. But at the level of experience I'd had, apart from that out-of-body experience, near-death experience at the age of 16, I was I was very resistant to the notion of a, of a spirit realm. But ayahuasca put me in a place where, where I was experiencing directly that there are levels of reality beyond the body. Right. Uh, and there are these transpersonal experiences and things that can't be explained by the, by the materialistic framework. And it caused me to review my life, mm. to look at the whole story of my life, to see episodes in my life where I had caused pain right. and, and, and I had not done the right thing and I had not been a nurturing and supportive and positive person to others. And, and to give me a, a strong impetus to do something about that. Not that I can go back and change sure, errors that I made in the past, but at the very least not repeat those errors right. in the future and try to be and try to be someone who is who is giving something back to the world rather than just taking all the time. 
uh, and and the sense that that if I do that, that it will that it will help me on the on on the journey. It has to come from the heart. It's not a calculated thing. You have to you have to reach a realization about how you're going to lead your life. And ayahuasca helps you to do that. The next step is up to you. Right. I'm not ayahuasca sure. is not a magic pill. It's not going to get rid of a lifetime of bad habits of in course. an instant. You have to work. That's where the work comes in. Mm -hmm. That's why ayahuasca is far from easy. Right. It's far from easy in drinking it. It's a very difficult physical ordeal. And it's far from easy in integrating the lessons that you get. But I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to have those lessons. And I'm not, I'm far from perfect. I'm a deeply flawed human being. But I am working on myself. Sure. And I hope that the, that the end result, I hope when the end comes, the end of this incarnation, that I will be able to face whatever confronts me there uh, with, with the answer that, yes, I made mistakes, but I also did try to put them right. And when the Egyptian gods got to weigh your heart and find out if it's as light as a feather or exactly. not. It's the weighing of the soul. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. again, the majestic, simple symbolism of ancient Egypt, yep. where, they, where, they, where they sum that up, that how does your life weigh in the in the feathers right. how your mistakes and and the good things you did and the positive things you did and did you and did you realize what a gift you'd been given right to be born in a human body to have this chance did you mm -hmm. did you did you take that gift and run with it or did you just ignore that gift this is perhaps the hardest question of all, and that's why our society is so dangerous and so demonic, because it is persuading people that we are just meat, that we are just here to produce and consume, uh, that we must just take it all for granted. Right. When in fact, it's an incredible, magical, enchanted mystery that we're immersed in, just the very fact of being alive at all. And that's doesn't get any more powerful than that. I mean, you guys want to have something to do for the rest of your day, meditate on that a tiny bit you know that's because that's your whole life right that's what ultimately is what kind of a human being you decide to be yeah. for whatever time you have and we are responsible for our lives absolutely we cannot devolve that onto anybody else absolutely. every choice we make is ours and we always have choice and not you're not sadly enough you're not the only one who pays the price for the for the mistakes no definitely more not. likely than not the whoever is close to you yes. is gonna pay the price absolutely. just as much as you do if not more absolutely which again gives even more responsibility more, to the kind more, of human more responsibility to and, and and more, more urgent need to, to to realize our impact upon others mm -hmm. we may go thoughtlessly through life for many for many decades but when that moment of awakening comes, we realize how we impact others. And once that realization is made, the responsibility is all the more upon us to be a positive and nurturing person, to yes. help others to, to grow, not yep. just ourselves. And yeah. to take care of our little greenhouse we live in here, floating in the middle Absolutely. of Absolutely. This, this garden, this garden of a planet, we've been given this. I we've mean, been this just. Sitting in the cat box for the yeah, very beginning. We've been, we've been doing terrible, terrible things to it. I mean, what a gift. We, the human species, and all of life on this planet have been have been given, and we just treat it like shit. It's funny you get this Christian notion a lot that the Earth was perfectly created for humanity, when actually no, just a tiny little fraction, the edges of all of it, yeah. is all we really get, and we yeah. don't get any of the water, and you can't go that deep, no. and you can't go that. It's the edge of the shell. But the whole thing is there, sustaining us and nurturing us. Yep. And when you receive sustenance and nurture from something 
the obligation is upon you to give it back, yep. not to just take, take, take. And that's what we're failing to do. And that's what the whole ethic of short-term profits and immediate gains that is pushed in our society day and night, 24 hours, is working so harshly against. Takes us all the way back to our friend the Demiurge. Yeah, right back to the Demiurge again. Precisely. Well, this is as beautiful as it gets. Graham, thank you so much. Thank you so this much. This is you. great. Thank you. It's been a delight talking to you guys. And for you guys, please, if you have any remote interest in any of what we have been saying, and I would imagine that if you are still listening by now, it's because you do have some remote interest in what we're saying. Graham made you an offer, an offer that you can't refuse. So... No, check it out because it's uh, he's been very generous with that offer. It would be great for you guys to support somebody who is a brilliant author to begin with and is trying to do a very courageous thing in just following what he wants to do, what he feels is the right thing to do in a way that the publishing industry is clearly not the most supportive of. So, hey, you know, check it out. Worst case scenario, you read a book you didn't like. Big deal. Best case scenario, you supported a great author into doing something that the market doesn't really allow. So please do that, and you guys have a wonderful day. I bought Fingerprints of the Gods only 15 years ago. I know I've said more than once on this podcast, and it was sort of a it could be the fact that it came out the same year my daughter was born because talk about you know mind-bending life-changing sort of things but it really is a great eye-opener and the fact that another one's coming out is really exciting but the fact that graham hancock's such a cool cat to come hang out with us for a little bit awesome. he's got to be a little busier than that you would think but no mate we're we are the theme of our good looks has gone abroad and uh, conquered the uk and he had to check it out for himself we got the pictures to prove that no, he's, uh, he's the man. He's so sweet. It was really nice for him to come by, and we had a really fun conversation. So a couple of things to wrap things up. Uh, if you guys buy anything on Amazon, please remember our Amazon link. It doesn't cost you a dime more, and it helps us out. So that's always great. Thank you to all the nameless people who do that on a regular basis. You guys are awesome. Uh, affiliate sponsor, Coracao Chocolate, Audible. Um, whether you're in the market for chocolate or for audiobooks, articles, any kind of audio material, please check out the episode notes for links to those. Donation time, the sweet souls among you will give us money for something that we give out for free. I would say it's time to start screwing up some people's last names. Let the battering begin. And this month we have Christian Bowman, Joseph Edwards, Joseph Yunis, Lynn Fan, uh, Chris Talent, John Attebury, I believe yours is a recurring donation, and so is Alexander Kosner, Aaron McLaughlin, and Amos Kingfisher. Uh, oh, we have more recurring. Matthias Eilstock, I believe. Among the one-time deal, but just as much appreciated, Peter Ellis, Andrew Sandlin, Emily McCoy, one of our rare female donors, very sweet. Aistis Juska. I have no idea if I pronounce even one letter in that name right. It's nice though. Yeah, right? it's, it has a cool go ring that. to it. But yeah, yeah. I'm Sean Ryan, Douglas Gustafsson, I would say perhaps Sweden maybe. Oh, yeah. Yes, Sweden indeed. Cameron Clinton, Philip Brady out of Ireland, Alastair Grant out of the UK, Hans Ivar Moss, 
I'm sorry, this is a long name. I started chopping it down too quick. Hans Ivar Moss Kolset from Norway. Nice. We are popular among the northern. We gotta go check out Scandinavia. Yeah. So thank you, thank you, thank you guys so much for supporting us. That's very, very sweet. And one more thank you to Desi House Music for providing, as always, the soundtrack to the beginning and the end. Kiva.com, go check it out. We're really approaching the 25,000 goal by Christmas. It looks like we're on course to make it happen. Um, oh, like 500 loans from you guys. It's really impressive. And it also is helpful for us to like say, look, people listen and actually react to what we say. So you really are helping us in a lot of ways as we try to improve this thing. Because if uh, we can get rolling at a bit bigger pace, I say a weekly show would not be impossible. So anyway, support the uh, the advertisers. Go check out Graham's book. Buy a copy. Get a book plate. And all the sponsors. It's important and it's way appreciated. So that's my pitch. I'll get off my soapbox and let you go get your daughter. Beautiful. You guys have a good one. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon. In questo cazzo, in questo caso, le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> <laughs> This was great. It's fucking awesome. Get back to work.